In January 2004, police were shocked by what they found inside the house of a small town in Durham, Ontario. Responding to complaints from relatives, police entered the ramshackled house and discovered two teenage boys locked in cages. Their biological aunt had adopted the teens more than a decade before. Through the years, the boys, now 14 and 15 years old, suffered at the hands of their adoptive parents. Ontario officials learned that though the boys did attend school during the day, they were sent to their cages at night. On weekends and holidays, they often were allowed downstairs for a bowl of cereal in the morning and then sent back to their cages wearing diapers where they would spend the rest of the day. Their aunt was described to the court as a domineering, controlling woman whose husband was an illiterate and dyslexic handyman who beat the boys on her command. Detective Kate Lang and Constable Tim Maul released the two boys from their cages. They told them they would never be locked in there again. Today we're starting a new sub-series in our journey through the story, and this series is called Get Out of Jail Free, and today is the first of four messages, and this one is titled Release, Chapter 4, and then next week is Reprogrammed, and then Reoriented, and then Relocated. How many of you read Chapter 4? Yeah, we're still doing pretty good. All right, keep, keep hanging in there. If you're new today, and I wonder what this is about, uh, we are going through the story, which is an abridged Bible, and we have some over there. If you'd like to pick one up after the service this morning, be glad to have you do that. Chapter 4 is an amazing story. Hollywood makes movies out of this chapter. It's one of the more dramatic parts of the story, and it is found in the book of Exodus. Last week, Jared talked about Joseph. Joseph had his family move to Egypt during the seven-year famine, so at the start of chapter 4, we find God's people, the new nation in Egypt. And in page 43, it's Exodus 1, 6, and 7, said, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation that died, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Notice the promise from chapter 2 has come true. Abraham is now the father of a great nation, as numerous as the stars, but now this newly formed nation is in slavery to the Egyptians, and it's, in a, it's a horrible situation going on. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now between chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a gap of 430 years. It's been a long week, okay? Where was America 430 years ago? I mean, this is a long time that they are in slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, I got a little ringing up here, uh, Jason. Anyway, God will deliver them, but here's the truth. God delivers in his time, in his way. God doesn't always deliver fast, like Jimmy John's or Domino's, okay? Or Mr. McFeely from Mr. Roberts, uh, Rogers' Neighborhood, remember him? Speedy delivery man. I never thought Mr. McFeely was a good name for a man on a children's program. Anyway, God delivers, but on his terms. Top of page 44 then. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. There's too many of them. Throw the boys into the Nile River. One of the main gods of Egypt was, of course, the god of the Nile, and this would be an offering to him. So in the lower story, the Egyptians are oppressing God's people, 
beating them down to the point of throwing their boys into the river, they're in jail. They're in bondage, and they need to be released. In the upper story, God delivers Israel. He will deliver them, but he's going to do it on his timetable and in his way. And it's the same with your story. You need deliverance as well. We all need deliverance. I don't know what you need to be released from today. Maybe it's financial jail. You know, I don't know how I got here financially. Maybe I do know how I got here financially, but I'm trapped and I'm upside down. I need to get released from it. Maybe you're in pornography jail. You just cannot overcome it. The pull is so strong. You need to get out of jail free card. Maybe you need to release from jealousy, envy. Maybe there's anger. Maybe you're in a jail of unforgiveness and you just cannot forgive someone. Or a jail of guilt. I was visiting a nursing home a while back, went by the room of a lady who was tied down. And when I went by her room, I heard her crying out, I want released! I want released! And it was so sad. She needed deliverance. She, needed, she was in the jail of an Alzheimer's mind. All of us need release from, from something, and certainly from our bondage to sin. And God will set Israel free, but it's going to be on His time, and it's also going to be in His way. And His way is to raise up a leader, a leader who would become one of the two or three greatest men in the Bible, Moses. And Moses is one of the baby boys that is supposed to be thrown into the Nile, and he was, technically. His sister hides him in a basket in the Nile. It's on page 44 of the story. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him and runs home and says, Daddy, Daddy, look what I found. Can I keep him? And she's able to use her big brown eyes to get what she wanted. And Pharaoh thought, well, it's just one little Jewish toddler. It probably won't be a problem. So Moses is raised in royalty. He learns to walk like an Egyptian. Today's a rough day. Page 44, two-thirds of the way down, says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses kills this Egyptian taskmaster. Notice he looks this way and that way. And seeing no one, he does it. When do you look this way and that way? Do it with me. This way, yeah. You want to make sure nobody's there. Check and see if anybody's around. The wife's gone. Kids are gone. Look this way and that way. And you do something you know you shouldn't. Mom and dad are gone. You look this way and look that way. You do it. Or you work and the boss isn't around. You look this way and that way. I can get away with it. You look this way and that way when you can't want to keep it a secret. But here's the secret about secrets. Secrets seldom stay secret. You will eventually get caught. I know people today who are in trouble in their marriage or trouble at work or even sitting in jail because they looked this way and that way. They thought no one knew and they thought they could get away with it. But the wife found out, the boss found out, and the whole life got turned upside down. Moses' life is now going to be turned upside down. He thought he could keep it a secret and he goes from a life in the palace of Egypt to, to being a shepherd. Overnight, he goes from prince of Egypt to a fugitive on the run. Now, in the next few hours, the next few days, most of you for many of you anyway, there's going to come a time where you're going to look this way and that way. And let me give you some pastoral advice right now. Don't do it. If it's something you want to keep secret, most of the time, it's something you don't want to do. Am I going to get caught? Am I going to get caught? You will. Don't do it. Now, it's amazing, though. God uses Moses' wrongdoing to bring about a good result. God did that last week in the story of Joseph. He uses this wrongdoing 
uh, by Moses, his sin actually, to shape him and to prepare him while he was in the desert. And God often uses our stupidity and our bad decisions for good. He's an amazing God. So in this chapter, I'm going to give you six words that describe who this God is. And the first one is the person of God. While in the desert, God, prepare, God appears to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses eight times objects to why he cannot go and lead the people out of Egypt. And uh, eight of them are in the book of Exodus. There's only four in the story here. But, but he cannot go to the one. He cannot go, be the one to go. He says, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a murderer. I'm a fugitive. And God says, I will be with you. And then the next objection he has, well, when I go, they're going to ask, who are you? So who are you, God? And Moses' first objection is, who am I? I'm a nobody. His second objection is, who are you? And then page 46, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's an odd name, I am. Scholars have translated it different ways. Uh, I will cause to be what I will cause to be was one possibility. Or I will be who I am or I am who I will be. It's a verb. If your name were a verb, what would it be? Think about that. I work. I farm. I preach, I retire, I teach, I eat, I play, I exercise. God says, I am. He is. No one else is. He's eternally present. When you tell someone your name, you're giving them something to draw just a little bit closer to that. You're revealing a little bit more about yourself. And when you know a person on a first name basis, you're just a little bit closer to them than when you didn't know their name. And throughout this story, we're going to find that God is drawing closer and closer to his people, revealing more and more of himself. It's called progressive revelation. Learning his name is a start, is one step in that. Remember back with Adam and Eve, the relationship with God is broken and a wall is put up and as we go through the story the wall is going to be taken down piece by piece until at the end we're fully in relationship with God again and the wall is completely gone God gives his name to get a little closer to Moses and to his people Moses then goes down to Egypt gets off to a rough start but God does several miracles to show his power and that's the second attribute of God in this chapter the power of God maybe the main one we see here at the bottom of page 48 says Moses throws down the staff and it turns into a snake wouldn't that be cool? I'd love to see that happen. So, and I think it's also interesting that it has Moses pick up the snake by the tail. You don't pick up a snake by the tail, do you? Bad place. Was, yeah, show your faith, Moses. Anyway, turns into a snake. Staff turns into a snake. But also you see what happens there. The magicians throw their staff down. They turn into snakes as well. Wow. I thought only God could do that. But there, there's a black power here going on. Then Moses turns the Nile River and all the water into blood, blood everywhere, even in the vessels of wood and stone. So you run the bathroom faucet, out comes blood. In the toilet, flush it, out comes blood. Water, you, you water the plants and out comes blood. I mean, it's just gross. But again, the Egyptian magicians duplicate that miracle. Third one is frogs. Frogs everywhere. But again, Egypt can copy and, and even make more frogs. Now, I think maybe on Duck Dynasty, that'd be a blessing. They'd think frogs everywhere is a cool thing, but it wasn't in Egypt. So what's going on? The, the magicians can do the same thing that God and Moses are doing. Well, there's a battle. There's a contest of who has the most power. It, it's a wrestling match here. The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt. Both can turn staff into snakes, but then Moses' snake swallows up their snake. They both can do the miracle of blood and frogs, but the Egyptians can't undo either of them. Only God can undo the plagues and remove them after Moses prayed. And then the fourth plague is the plague of gnats, and they can't copy that anymore or any of the rest. 
flies, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. It's a battle between God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. God is revealing his power over creation, over the animals, over the plants and water, and even life itself. So these plagues are not just random strikes. You know, God says, well, I'll do this and then I'll do that. No, they're carefully choreographed defeat of the Egyptian gods. Every one of the plagues was an attack on one of the gods of Egypt, like the goddess of the Nile was Isis. Haggit was a goddess of fertility and was portrayed as a human body with a frog head. Another god was represented by a fly, another by a cow or a bull, uh, so we had the plague against livestock. Sekhmet was the goddess of disease, so they were struck with boils. Hail was an attack on Newt, the sky goddess. Locust was an attack on Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. Darkness was against the sun god Ra. And then the death of the firstborn was against men, the god of reproduction. And God is saying, I am the only god and the only one with power. After the 10th plague, Pharaoh finally lets the people go, and they head out to the Red Sea. And again, we see his power. Let's watch this clip. Egyptians, on the hill. your God now, Moses. We have them, they're trapped! Ah! Moses! Chariots! They're here! The Egyptians! Fool! What do we do now? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? Because that is what you've done! Moses. This is the end you planned for us. We have watched you bring terror on our enemies. You kept death from our door.
Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Anyway, so power of God. Then top of 50, or page 53 at the top says, By day the Lord went ahead them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Okay? Now you wake up at night and you wonder, well, is God still with us? And so you look out the tent door and see that pillar of fire. Oh, yep, God's with us. Everything's good. Everything's good. That's the presence of God. Wouldn't it be great to see the power of God and the presence of God Something visible and tangible, you know, seeing a pillar of fire outside our doors, you know, so we know God is here. Wouldn't we be more likely to believe if we had tangible, visible evidence? What's interesting, this generation of Israelites saw more tangible evidence of God's presence and God's power than any in the history of humanity. And you know what they're known for? We'll see it especially in a couple of weeks. Their unbelief. And they're doubting and they're complaining and grumbling. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Why? Partly because it doesn't do any good. When you see all these miracles, and if you saw these miracles, you still would not follow God with your whole heart because faith goes deeper than what you can see. Israel had the presence of God in a fire and in a cloud. We have the presence of God within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that, of course, later on in the story. But he is with us, his presence. Another aspect of God is the provision of God. The last few pages of this chapter, the Hebrew people are complaining, as they usually do, about lack of water, lack of food, no meat. So God provides manna and quail and, and water. And manna, basically, is frosted flakes. He didn't give them cornflakes. He gave them frosted flakes, the good stuff, because it had honey. It's wafers that tasted like honey. Now, when I was a kid, we couldn't afford frosted flakes. We had to eat the stuff, you know, the other stuff, the cornflakes. Now I have to eat the fiber flakes, and that's even worse. But anyway, every night they get manna, and then they have quail for meat, and then they have water that comes out of the rock to provide for them. They're in the Sinai Peninsula. They're in a desert, and there's no way to provide themselves, so God has to take care of them. And I want you to think, what are some ways God has provided for you? I know all of us can look back and say, yeah, God was working there. He really did some things. Back when our kids were still at home, we knew that they'd probably both go to college and we needed to save, and so we did save some money. Um, but we also were going through, we went through two different stewardship campaigns in the churches that we were serving during those growing up years. And in the stewardship campaigns, usually, usually the senior minister gives the first testimony, tells how much he's going to give and how much he's going to sacrifice over the next three years and trust God and all that. So we made two uh, three-year commitments. For, so for six years, we put retirement on hold, basically, and we put college savings on hold. And I'm not saying this is for everybody at all, but it's just we felt God's leading that we needed to trust him and put our money where our mouth is. So we gave, and a few years later, the kids got ready to go to college. And then on top of that, Michelle uh, hadn't finished her degree, and she wanted to go back. And they all wanted to go to this private school named Lincoln Christian College, Lincoln Christian University, and all three at the same time. And we've not saved uh, nearly as much as we needed to or as much as we'd hoped to, largely because of that giving to God and just trusting God, you're going to take care of us. And lo and behold, the day before my oldest starts college, we get a knock on the door, and you're not going to believe this. We get a knock on the door, we open the door, no one is there, but there's a bag on the doorstep, and we open the bag with $100,000 in it. Now, if you believe that, i got a bridge to sell you. I think first service believed me. Do you believe? Yeah, yeah. Don't believe that. That didn't happen. But wouldn't that be cool? Man, I would really have faith then. Pillar cloud, bags of money, parting the Red Sea, bread coming down out of heaven, miraculous. But it didn't work that way, at least not for me. But God did us get through that time. 
um, some things just happened. There were some coincidences, and, and of course, we worked hard and cut some corners, and we got them through school. No debt? Miracle? Mm, kind of. God provided. God worked. God calls Moses, says, you go and I'll provide. You do God's will and he'll get you through. I'm kind of amazed that Les and Sarah are leaving this week. I, I didn't know if they'd be able to raise that kind of support, and that kind of that finances. And God called him and said, I'll provide. And he has. We also see here the patience of God. Even though God provides Again, again, the people grumble against him and they whine. We don't like the man and we're getting tired of it. We got, we got so much meat, we're tired of that. And, and several times they said it'd be better to go back to Egypt. We don't like it being here in the desert. And I, to be honest, I'm with the Israelites. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They're, they're in a desert with no water. I would worry. I'd probably complain and grumble a little bit. Even though God provides over and over, we still don't trust him. The Bible calls it a sin. Grumbling's a sin. A group of tourists were touring Ireland, and one of the women in the group was a real complainer and moaner. The uh, bus seats were uncomfortable. The food was terrible. It was either too hot or too cold, and the accommodations were awful. And the group arrived at the site of the famous Blarney Stone. And the guide said, good luck will follow you all your days if you kiss the Blarney Stone. But then he said, unfortunately, it's being cleaned today, so no one will be able to kiss it. Perhaps we can come back tomorrow. And we can't come back tomorrow, the nasty woman shouted. We have, all this other, we have another boring tour to go on, so I guess we can't kiss that stupid stone. And the guide said, well, it is said if you kiss someone who has kissed the stone, you'll have the same good fortune. And I suppose you've kissed the stone, the woman said, you know, rudely. No, ma'am, the frustrated guide said, but I have sat on it. <laughs> These jokes are deep today, so... <laughs> but God is patient I, I, he's a lot more patient than us would be, even when these people complain. Now, his patience does run out, but he never does give up on them, and we'll see that in a couple weeks. We also see in this chapter the plan of God, the 10th plague, the death of every firstborn son, and that's when Israel is finally released. If you're a firstborn male, I'd like you to stand right now. Firstborn male, that's men. Stand up. <laughs> wow. Okay, you may be seated. In one night's time, everyone standing, wiped out. I got to thinking about this. I'd lose my older brother, my only son, and all three of my grandsons. And that's what it took for Pharaoh to finally say, I give. You are released. Go. Page 51, two-thirds of the way down, says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God speaking here. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That night, they are given instructions for the Passover meal, which today, even today, Jews celebrate the Passover, and that's the meal that Jesus was eating with the disciples the night before he died. When Jesus took his bread, said, took the bread, said, this is my body. He took the cup, the Passover cup, said, this is my blood. So he was bridging Jewish tradition of the Passover to a transition to a new Passover where Jesus would be the Passover lamb and he would die for our sins and we could be released. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So as we take communion today, I want us to realize the rich imagery from the Old Testament, how Jesus became the Passover lamb so we can be delivered and released from bondage. From what do you need to be delivered? Maybe you need to be released from something in your past, maybe a wound from childhood, 
Maybe there's an ongoing habit you just cannot break. Maybe some sin that you cannot conquer. I want you to write that down in your bulletin and then also on that little sheet of paper that is in your seat. I need released from whatever it is for you. Financial bondage. Maybe it's a sickness. Um, maybe it's worry. I, I don't know. So write down something both in your bulletin and on that little sheet, little piece of paper. When those two boys were released from their cages in Ontario and they were told they would never have to go back, one of the boys asked, really? He couldn't believe it. And you will be surprised at how God provides. He will provide in some way. And then, and maybe, maybe there's someone, and this is the second one, someone you know needs to be delivered, who needs the blood of the Passover lamb, needs salvation. The word salvation actually means to be freed or released. And write down the name of someone who needs salvation or deliverance. And you can do that in your bulletin and also on that little sheet of paper. See, all these plagues and all these miracles have one purpose, and it's a recurring frame in this chapter. God says, do this so that they may know that I am the Lord. We want everyone to know that he is the Lord. Everything we do as a church should have that as our caption, that people may know that he is the Lord. So I want you to write down the name of someone. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your spouse or child or neighbor. And I'm just going to ask you to pray for that person. Pray for open doors and pray for opportunities to witness to them. When Adam sinned, all of us was put in jail. When Jesus died, we were given a get-out-of-jail-free card. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing story of deliverance and power. We see your mighty work in this episode, and God, we know that you've not changed. You're still powerful. You're still present. You're still patient, and you still have a plan. And I pray that everyone here will see their role in your plan, that we will see how you are working in our lives to bring about your will, that we will see our role in bringing deliverance to this world, freeing the captives from bondage. Thank you for allowing us to get out of jail free. Amen.